Today on Sagittarian Matters, how to make something out of nothing. Community, tours, jobs, art, promotion, and more. With my guests, Michelle T. and Beth Pickens. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. What's the Michelle T. is a writer, a filmmaker, and the founder of Drag Queen Story Hour. She's the co-founder of Sister Spit and the author of many books, including Against Memoir, A Mermaid in Chelsea Creek, and more. Beth Pickens is a Capricorn, an arts consultant, a strategic planner, and a grant writer. She's the author of the book, Your Art Will Save Your Life, and she is a frequent contributor and fan favorite on Sagittarian Matters. You can find her at Beth Pickens Consulting on Instagram. Now, please enjoy my talk with Michelle T. and Beth Pickens. Beth, what's an example of something that you've made out of nothing? Or a community thing you've done that's gone on to feed you? Mm, You know, a a really prime example was so when i started my conversion to judaism in my mid-20s in columbia missouri um i felt really sort of outside of the formalized jewish community there because the rabbi was this conservative rabbi and he was known to be homophobic and stuff so i just always felt really uncomfortable and also there were never adults my age participating in spiritual jewish community which was my experience up until now that i'm 40 finally there's kind of people my age but from my mid-20s till now I always felt kind of like, I'm the only one in my age group. And so I really wanted to be participating in Jewish holidays, but I felt so uncomfortable with the structure of what was available. So I created my own Seder in collaboration with some undergrads in the Hillel Center at the University of Missouri. And we made this big social justice Seder. Uh, I think the first one was in like 2005, maybe. And I think it went on for years after I left, but it was... It was so clear to me that, oh, you can just make a thing. When you feel excluded or you don't see a way into something, you can just find the other people who also feel that way and make your own thing. And then it ends up being much bigger and more fun and cooler than the thing that's available. I had breakfast shows, which was like, I like going to shows, but it felt too pretentious and weird. I was never a big drinker. So I was like, what if everyone just came together in the light of day and like someone played in my living room, not that loud. So I didn't have to worry about the neighbors. And we had like coffee and maybe pancakes and people got to sit on the floor and watch their favorite bands that's amazing that is so cute would go now yeah would definitely go now like bring back the breakfast show i would love to bring back the breakfast show because it just was like i just i always liked music but i hated the pretense of music Mm -hmm. like the thing where you go and it's dark and people are drinking and like you're you know i don't know and then the bands were loud and i was like what if we all got to see each other and then talk to each other and hang out then you have the whole day ahead of you yeah you leave and you're jacked up on coffee and your friends are there already and you're like what are we gonna do it was really fun would do that now would love that breakfast show yeah think about it okay great pancakes pancakes i'll make some pancakes i'll make some coffee everybody come to the breakfast show um so, Michelle, a lot of people already know, because you've been on the podcast before, about how Sister Spit came to be. But can you give us a quick a quick uh, history of why you created that space? In a nutshell, it was the 90s, and spoken word was really popular, and there were um, like poetry and spoken word open mics like every night of the week in a different place in San Francisco. They were everywhere, but they were... It, 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 
it kind of invited a certain kind of dude who just like needed a lot of attention. So there, you'd have to just sit through just like all of these dudes who just were awful, like, like bad writers or offensive or like not even artists, but just like wanting everyone's attention and would just like get up on stage and do stupid stuff. Mm. So, um, I met Cindy Anderson um, through Harry Dodge at the Bearded Lady who had said that, you know, this poet from Chicago's in town and wants to do this, like an all-girl open mic um, kind of deal. And I, to- and I told her she should talk to you. So we had, we went for a drink and I brought like all my chat books. I'm all, I was like, well, if you're going to do this, you have to invite Allie Liebegott, here's her chat book. And you have to invite Beth Lissick, here's her chat book. And you have to invite Marcy Blackman, here's her chat book. And she was like, why don't we just do it together? And I was like, okay. And so we just did it together. And it was just like, all girl on the stage, like female identified, whatever, um, open mic. And it ran for two years every Sunday. And then it turned into a tour because I had gone on a tour um, with my band. And it was, we were so awful, but we still managed to go on a tour and like make enough money to put in the gas tank. And I was like, if we can do that and we are an awful band, what about like actually good writers that I know? Like, could we do it? And we did. And then... If you had to do it now, I guess I, I so say that there's somebody listening to this podcast and I'm like, ooh, that sounds cool, but I don't have any money. Michelle must no be money. rich. We had no <laughs> money. Oh my God, we had no money. At some point after we'd done it for like two years or something, when people were trying to like get us money, they were like, you have to write your budget of like how much you spend or something. And we finally sat down and wrote a budget. And if we had seen how much money it was going to cost us to do it, we would have never done it because we had no money. And we identified as people who had no money and no resources. So if we had seen that, we would have been so intimidated and not done it. But we were just sort of like alcoholics and just sort of plunged blindly forward with just like passion and determination. And um, yeah, we didn't have credit cards. We didn't have cell phones. We barely had email. We did everything through the U.S. Postal Service. Oh, my God. Um, and, like, long-distance calls on our landlines and booked booked shows and other – I mean, it would be so much easier for you to do it now with no money because you oh have the internet. God. I mean, there's actually no reason for you not to do it now. There is so much easier. And yeah. even, like, a small regional tour yeah. that's, like, a four dates or something, mm-hmm. just, like, driving in a car – Preferably a rental car if your car's not so great. Yeah. Like, like just driving, like, you know, if you live in Portland, doing, like, Seattle, uh, maybe Vancouver, B.C., yeah. somewhere on the coast, maybe Eugene or somewhere else yeah. around. Like, it's Bellingham. It's, like, so easy. You could do it at a library. You could do it at a club. You could do it it's at so house fun. shows. You could do it. And, yeah, we did it all of those places. We did it in art galleries. We did it in, like, a sushi restaurant, a bookstore. I mean, we did it any place where they would let us charge an admission um, and then some places where we just had to pass the hat. Um, but yeah. But this is an interesting part because both of you changed my life or were um, adjacent to changing my life in the way I think about artists getting paid for money and also Tara Perkins, who's here in absentia. Oh. Like the idea that artists deserve to get paid for their work. And so you can't, you know, if you bring a bunch of people out of their homes to travel the country, if you're not paying them, then you're only going to get the people that can afford to leave their homes to travel the country. And so, you know, every voice is is valuable and so find a way to pay people so that some people can afford to go and show their different voice so what are different ways that both of you can think of for artists to get paid on the road for things if they wanted to leave their home to do a tour or something like this i mean for sister spit i mean nobody got paid like we got everyone made 80 dollars at the end of a month's work (laughs) Um, for that first tour um later now in sister spit tours because 
Um, it's become more professionalized and people get shows at universities and places that have a budget to bring touring acts in. So looking for those connections, um, it took us a while to find those connections um, since we were people who like hadn't even gone to college. So we just didn't necessarily know about that. Um, I always made sure that we would perform in places that didn't take a cut of our money. Like a lot of places will let you have their spot for free if they're making money off drink sales or something like that. I mean, that would make us be in a bar a lot of times, but sometimes art galleries also like, we're just happy to host us and give us the money. I mean, people really value you coming to their community. And so we would experience a lot of generosity on the part of people who owned community spaces and stuff like that. If they could afford to, to not take a cut, then they wouldn't. Um, and yeah. Beth, give me the prompt again. Oh, I, I think I went off prompt. How can people uh, dig up some money oh, to okay. finance themselves leaving their home? So they're not actually like just racking up credit card debt. Right, right, right. Okay. I think, a touring artist, no matter what your discipline, a couple of ways to bring in money on the road. Um, one is merchandise of yeah. any kind, like selling things that you've made, making some low-cost merch that mm -hmm. you can net a profit off of. That's a really good way to bring in some income. In the later years of Sister Spit, a lot of the artists would make significant income. In yeah. addition to the fee that we paid them for being on tour, they, they could make a lot of money off their merchandise. So that's definitely one. And then teaching anything, any kind of workshop. You can do – if you're an artist, you have at least one workshop, possibly many in you. Mm -hmm. And that can be a way to fund when you're going to different towns, setting up a workshop that you're going to teach through a community arts center, through a library, through an arts institution, through a university – when I was on my book tour in 2018, that's what I did to finance it. Everywhere I went, I made sure I had a paying teaching gig or a paying speaking gig in addition to, um, you know, reading a bookstores, which of course doesn't pay. And, you know, when you, when you are on a book tour, it will be a long time or ever. It, it, it may be never that you see book royalties, but it'll be at least a year. So going on a book tour, maybe your press gives you a little bit of money, but even if they're able to underwrite some of it, it won't be all of the cost. So it is important to think about how can I bring in money while I'm on the road? Oh yeah. I mean, I feel like on Sister Spit, when I went, which was the next generation. Yeah. So we got paid a little bit. We got a per diem. Yeah. I think when I started, it was like $5 a day or something, but I was like, woohoo. Like it just felt awesome to be like, somebody feeds me every day. It was like I get one bean burrito every day from Taco Bell. I mean, I just wish that like Tara Perkins was at my house every morning, just knocking on the door with an envelope being like, here's your per diem. <laughs> yeah. Like oh, wow. go buy yourself some food totally. when you get home. It was so, so nice. But we had, I remember thinking about it as like the fun shows and then the like money shows. Like, yeah. cause a college show, you know, if you're a college listening, definitely book any of us. But if you're a college show, like sometimes, you know, the person booking us would be excited about us, but then they would put us like in the dining room while a bunch of oh. other stuff was going on. And so it would be like a little <laughs> bit demoralizing. So just know, like, sometimes you're going to have shows that are paying you, but it's going to be like, people playing chess or playing oh instruments yeah. in the same room, not paying attention. Like mm -hmm. while Eileen miles is reading oh, and there's right. somebody like asleep at their desk and you're like pearls before swine. Yeah, totally. um, <laughs> but then there's going to be other shows where you're like, Oh my God, we're doing it at this like bookstore. That's really cute. It's a feminist bookstore. Like everyone's going to come or it's like at this venue or a house show where all the friends are going to come. We're not going to make very much money. We're just going to pass a hat. But, you know, just know if you have a bummer show, there's going to be a redemptive fun show. Or at least balance it out for yourself. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> like I have always felt that, like, shows have to be, one, like, two out of three things. And the three things are close to wherever your last show was. So, like, a short drive. Um, 
really like personally rewarding, meaning like a great show or paying you a bunch of money. Yeah. So it's got to be like two of those things. I like that. I think, you know? Yeah. It can be like close and meaningful and you don't make a lot of money or it can be meaningful and you make a lot of money, but you have to drive for it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Shoshana Ruth Wechter, Michelle Lemoyne, Mary Pinson, Jill Soloway, and Christy Herrett. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, including producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $10, $5 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That's hornet like the insect, leg like its appendage at gmail. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it, too. Don't be scared. That's just Ponyo's voice. For cartoonists, my friend Alec is like, he's like, basically, you need to either be really easy to work with, really talented, or I can't remember the other thing, or like always on time. Like you have to be pleasant, (laughs) reliable, or really talented. You need to have two of those things. And like, it's rare to find someone that's all of those things. He's like, he's like, basically, he's like, my drawing, I think, you know, is is neither here nor there, but I'm really professional and I always do things on time. So people yeah. know they can count on me. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and I feel that. I also feel that way about like taking a job. It needs to either give you a lot of time, a lot of money, or a lot of joy. So it's just like, yeah. these are like just different kind of versions of like the Venn diagram of <laughs> should I do a thing yes. or should someone hire me? Yeah. Totally. That's what I tell artists all the time. I have that three, like a three prong matrix. When you're when you have a bunch of opportunities and you're trying to decide what to say yes to, what to say no to, the first one is, does it pay? The second is, is it a lateral move or is it something that actually expands or offers you something new? And the third thing, is it something that would just be very soul nourishing? You really want to do it. Mm-hmm. So it has to do ideally two or more, but at least one of those things. Mm, I like the idea, the idea of moving. Is it moving you up in your career or yeah. are you just staying the same place? Right. I'm Capricorn. You're Capricorn. But that, that leads me to a question of what, what, are, what are good times to say no? You know, because Beth, you have in some of your work stuff about protecting your practice. Mm-hmm. And in, uh, as working artists, we both know it's so easy for other things to take your time, especially when people know you work from home. Yeah. When people know you're your own boss, mm-hmm. they don't have – that you're not going into a hole for eight hours a day where someone else is in charge, that you're in charge. So they can be like, but are you sure you don't want to go to lunch? Totally. Or are you sure you don't want to come to a visit our school or whatever? Like – when is it time to say no to something? Like, how do you protect your practice? I I have a hard time with this. I'm always confused about, because I want to do everything. So, so much seems like it would be really rewarding for me and it would have that covered. But um, I just actually canceled. I was supposed to be part of this whole tarot thing in upstate New York. And I had been really excited about it. And then when I went to buy my ticket, I saw the numbers sort of more clearly and realized, oh my gosh, like the amount of money they're giving me for travel 
barely covers this and I think eats into a little bit of my fee, which suddenly doesn't feel like it's enough money now that I see what it's going to take for me to travel to upstate New York, which is like lift to the airport, fly to New York, take the train from the airport to Penn Station, take a train or a bus to upstate New York and then get to... I was like, oh my God, for $1,000? That seems insane. Yeah. And so I canceled and I canceled a little late in the game and I should have canceled a lot earlier, Mm -hmm. but I just hadn't really looked at it. I just thought, tarot? I get to go stay in a pretty place. You guys are paying me a thousand dollars. It sounds great. Mm-hmm. And then you're just like thousand dollars isn't actually that much money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you look at it like that. I mean, we've been talking about that. We can circle back to the general knownness, but we've been talking lately about like having a day rate for yourself, but also incorporating travel days in with that day rate. So yeah. say like, you know, you're like, okay, my day rate is, I don't know, however, you know, just throwing a number like $400, $300 or whatever. And then someone's like, we'll give you a thousand dollars. And you're like, great. And then you look and it's like four days of being yeah. away from home. And you're like, well, that doesn't equal out to my day rate right. at the end of the day. Right. So. Yeah. I think it's important for artists to think about what is your day rate local? What's your day rate in state? And then your day rate out of state. Mm-hmm. And then that can be, and then every year raising it. Mm-hmm. Like don't keep it frozen for 10 years at a time. Yeah. Um, cartoonists, I'll have you know that cartoonist Nate Powell gave me this exact same advice when he was talking about how he decides what to go to and what to stay home for. It's like he, but he also does the math of thinking like, how much do I need to make a year to cover all my expenses and take care of my family? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then like, you know, dividing that by however many days. Mm -hmm. And so he does it that way. Yeah. That's how, I mean, that's how I do it as a self-employed person. I know what my target is to make annually. And then that's broken down by month and then by working day. So I know how much I need to make per day at minimum to make that annual goal. Beth, I know that you just gave us your kind of matrix for the three things that you tell artists to think about, but do you have any other advice for protecting your practice and when to say no? Mm. The world will only ever want to take you away from your art. You will only ever want to pick something else besides your art. Like there's nothing but opportunity to not do your project (laughs) and go do anything else. So I kind of think about it like holding some time every week that's sacred for it that it it cannot be disturbed and for some people they like that to be the same time same day every week and then for other people they just want it to be a chunk of time that I know the week is not over until I've spent five hours with my project whatever that is it's just thinking about like how do I hold this sacred because if I don't it won't get done. Like if you don't do it, unless somebody is paid you and is waiting on you to submit something, no one's waiting for you to make your art. Nobody ever. Mm-hmm. Like, unless they're profiting from it or they've paid you to do it, yeah. they're not. no one's going to ask you to make it. And so it has to be you. And I think that happens through just habit, just an ongoing habit of showing up for your work all the time, even if you don't feel like it, even if it's not going very well. With the idea that over time, like I said, your week will feel incomplete if you haven't attended to it. It'd be like if you left the house and didn't floss. I know. Do you ever floss? I, fl- I floss a lot, but not really? in the morning always. I yeah. really dislike flossing. I, don't, I hate it, but you I gotta do it. I really don't. Every morning. Every morning. Every morning. The only reason I floss, I didn't floss. Like I had no oral <laughs> hygiene as a child. Look at all the gold in my mouth. You'll see. Nobody taught me to brush my teeth. But as an adult, like in my early 20s, I started flossing every day. I told, I'm told, i sure I've told you both this many no. times of how I started doing I it. No. It's really gross. Time. I think of it all the time. The thing that made me start flossing every day is I started flossing and then I would smell the floss. So I would smell. Gross. And it would smell so disgusting that I would think that is what's in my mouth. 
That is horrifying. And that is what made me start flossing every day. What does day. your floss smell like now? Oh, fantastic. Really? Like clean, <laughs> squeaky clean. Because <laughs> I floss every day. Does it really smell good? Well, it doesn't smell like putrid death, death like it did in my early 20s when I wasn't flossing every day. This is wonderful. The only reason I started brushing my teeth as a child is because of breath. Like, I, nobody was making me brush. Mm-hmm. No, you know, my mom was like, that's fine. Let your teeth rot out. I'll just take you to the dentist. Like, it just was like this cycle of my teeth all rotting out of my head and then having elaborate dental procedures. I never had to brush. All I had to do was eat candy. And then at a certain point, my mom told me a story about when she was a kid, her best friend never brushed. And so she said that her breath smelled like dog shit. And then oh my I, God. I did a little like breath test and I was like, oh my oh God. My, my breath shit. smells like dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> so then I, that's the only reason I ever even started brushing my teeth at all. I know. There were no adults making us take care of our bodies. <laughs> That's a different episode. What's a body? Um, wait, I, I had some I had something I wanted to talk about after seeing. No. Oh, I wanted to talk just briefly about self-promotion. I keep being on panels with cartoonists who are like too noble to admit that they would ever promote their own work. Ugh. There's like something about it where they're like a saint on the cross who's just like, oh, I'm not I'm not a big self-promoter. Oh, God. And I just am like, what That just the- must mean that somebody else is being paid to promote them. Right. So um, that's nice for them that they have that resource. But like, <laughs> even when I've had publishers, I had the dream that I was like, well, someday I'm going to have a publisher and then I don't have to do it anymore. Oh. And that's beyond, that's, that's not, not true. true. I yeah. had to hire my own publicists this year to go along with or the other year with to go along with fetch because i spent five years on fetch and i was like it just deserves more than what i'm gonna get yeah from the publisher because my publisher publishes books that are way bigger than mine so i'm Mm -hmm. not getting like the full force of their publicity department i'm getting like two people out of the team and i just wanted more people on my side yeah Mm -hmm. so i really believe in self-promotion it doesn't feel comfortable for anyone when they first start doing it Nobody's born being like, da-da-da! Yeah, but I mean, like, if if you don't show up for your book, nobody is going to know about it. Nobody's going to care about your book as much as you do, or your art, or whatever it is. And, like, I I don't know. I feel like there was a moment when maybe social media first started where people were more sensitive about using it for those purposes or they felt more sheepish because it was new but let's be real like everybody promotes themselves on social media all the time like even if you're not an artist you're promoting your life yeah or some aspect of yourself it's not a big deal and to be precious about it just seems like weird in this at this point in time yeah. I, just, I just feel like i just feel like it's a disservice to your art to it not is. tell people about it and like and i want to know don't you want to know about other people's art i like knowing i want to know when people are reading when they have a new book out like i'm into it that's I why i follow it. people because yeah. i want to know how i can support them and yeah. i want i've probably already liked something they did and so i want to keep supporting them because I want to keep liking stuff that they put out, but I have to know about it because otherwise there's something that's like egotistical about feeling like people should just be researching you all the time to find out when you have a new work. That's more arrogant actually. That's how (laughs) I feel when people are like, well, I don't promote myself. Like, I'm just like, well, how the hell? How do you expect people to? Yeah. Because you have a giant end cap in a bookstore and everyone just wanders over and grabs your book. Do you want us all just put like a Google alert on your name? Like, what do you want? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think before the digital age, there used to be, there's kind there was this like myth about obscure art and like finding out about something nobody knew about. Right. And that there was some sort of like cultural capital to obscurity that I think the digital age obliterated. Like there it's, there's no, so whether or not it was ever true or if it's just our nostalgia for that pre-digital time, now there's so much 
competition for our eyes and our ears and our money. There's so much competition with content that you actually have to make it be known if you're making something or truly nobody will know about it. Mm-hmm. And I also think that whole, like, the, the prize put on obscure art, I feel like that was something more among the consumers of art, not the artists themselves. Like, did any artist really be, was was any artist ever super into being obscure? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think it's really cool if you're like, oh, I'm really into this obscure band. Like, that's cool for you as a fan. Yeah. But is it cool for the band? No. no. You know? N- not at all. I remember reading, like, an interview in the 90s with Sonic Youth where they were basically bitching about exactly this. And I remember being like, oh, Sonic Youth doesn't want to be. Obscure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, I was like, oh, they want to be. Like famous and make a bunch yeah. of money. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> like it hadn't occurred to me. And there's that myth of that if your work is really good, people will find it, and that's not true. No. That's that's just not true at all. There's like no correlation between no correlation. Like, success or fame and like quality. No, the no. most famous things are terrible. <laughs> Always. I think so too. <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about like a uh, Beth. I heard you saying today to somebody like, "There's no such thing as big breaks. There's just nepotism," <laughs> which I thought was really funny, especially here in Hollywood. Hollywood, I think that's really true for Hollywood. Uh, well, I think people can feel this pressure like to never say no to things because what if this is the thing that like makes their career happen or whatever? And I think that myth it, it sort of, that happens in art worlds too, not just entertainment. Like having some rarefied experience exalted as that's what could happen to you. This very rare thing when really what usually happens is just relationships it's just through relationships it's just showing up and making the thing that you make all the time and then relationships and advocating for your art but you have no control over when a so-called break is going to happen so people who make their lives unmanageable because they feel like they can't ever say no to anything are doing themselves a disservice true Mm. as somebody who's made my life unmanageable by my inability (laughs) to say no to things it's really true nothing ever brings you a thing. I mean, there is a cumulative effect of like putting yourself out there and saying yes to things, especially I think when you're first get when you're first mm-hmm. getting started. I think like you just have to work a lot for free and have to like do a lot and hopefully you're young enough and inspired enough that that's like not a really big deal for you so that when you feel old and exhausted, you can start saying no to stuff. I want to say as an artist, um at the point that I'm at, I have a couple of causes that I will always do free work for. And anything else, I'm just like, sorry. So, like, sometimes my students, I'm like, yeah, when you're beginning, I think you should, like, make flyers for your friend's band. Like, do art for your friend's project for free or cheap. Like, something you support and that you like and get, you know, if you want exposure that way. Don't do free work for rich people. Never. It's something that I honestly am just getting drilled in my head the past couple years. Don't do free work for rich people ever. Yeah, never. You wouldn't believe how often we all get asked to do free work for rich people. (laughs) There's also no correlation with how much money someone has and how much money they're offering you to do something. Totally, totally. Yeah, that's really true. Like, I've chased around, like television like comp- production companies for like a hundred dollars i've been like harassing every person at a company for like a hundred dollars that they're months and months delinquent on just out of principle oh mm-hmm. feels so bad so gross i feel so bad so i think you know i recommend for each artist you think about what are the causes that are important to you for me it's the rock and roll camp for girls uh you know the low income senior citizens with dementia in portland that i love and then animal rights organizations like farm sanctuaries Mm -hmm. anytime they ask me to do a t-shirt design or whatever i'm like sure other people come up to me and they're like you know i'm i don't know i'm having a lemonade sale for my i'm just i i can't i can't do that yeah no i i do the same thing in my consulting practice i i have sort of a circle around the things that i do pro bono and then everything else has to be paid yeah 
and I'll choose different causes. Like I've done fundraisers for races, you know, like groups like that, like supporting, you know, uh, migrant organizations and stuff. But that's like me being like, okay, I now, they didn't ask me to do that because I'm not in their purview. So I'm like, I'll just do my own fundraiser for them. Cool. Are there specific things that you'll do? I mean, when I get asked to do stuff, it's usually just to kind of come and be in a reading. So it's usually a little easier. Mm. You know, it's not like I'm creating a, an original piece of work like you are, Nicole. Mm-hmm. So I can just kind of show up and read for something if it's attractive to me or. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody flood Michelle's in No, don't <laughs> do it. No. You heard it here first. <laughs> She'll do any reading for free. No. She'll do what anything. What I have to not do is, is offer uh, tarot readings in a raffle. That's what I have to no, not do because no. that is like too <laughs> annoying. <laughs> that is anything like that that feels like homework. It's so homework. You're like, oh, now I have to go and spend an hour of emotional time with a stranger. In- first for your zine or like whatever <laughs> it is i'd rather just buy your zine <laughs> if you have an advice question for sagittarian matters call or text our advice hotline 971-361-9998 leave a message we might answer your question on the air and we promise not to answer the phone that is a sagittarian promise that you can take all the way to the bank Both of you contributed to something that didn't exist in the world that you made, which was called the Radar Lab. Beth Pickens, can you tell me a little bit about how this came to be? Yeah. So Michelle had a nonprofit organization that still exists in San Francisco called Radar Productions, a queer literary organization. And then in 2008... I, I, so I was working for her. She was the artistic director. And um, we, separate from the organization, went on vacation one summer because our our um, our fundraising mentor has a condo in Acumal, Mexico, right on the right on the water and the most beautiful place on earth, I think. And so Michelle and I, Tara Perkins, my spouse, Ali Leibgott, we all went on vacation and it was the most beautiful place we'd ever been. And we said, how can we come back here? And we have to bring other people here too. And and from that, from that time, the Radar Lab, a a writer's and artist retreat for queer artists was born. We get the, the myth, the myth is unclear if it was Michelle or Ali. They were not clear who was like, we should make a retreat here. But one of them said, we should make a retreat here. Yeah, I don't remember who said it. I feel like it just became born out of our brains. And then we, it was, you know, because of all the work that we'd been doing for Radar, and then even previous to that, Sister Spit, just having contact with so many writers all over, you know, the continent, really, um, or, you know, the US and then some of Canada, we just opened up the submission process to anyone who'd ever read at Radar or with Radar or with Sister Spit. And that was over 400 artists, and it grew you know, every year and people could submit, um, a proposal of like, you know, writing sample, what they planned to work on at the lab. We would have three outside judges who were somehow involved in arts and literature and they would read just the work. They wouldn't know anything about who the person was. And then internally me, Allie and Beth knew who the people were and we would read. And then we would just like rank everybody and get to see who was coming. And it was really close quarters. I mean, it wasn't like McDowell where you got a, you know, a little cottage and somebody dropped a basket of, of food on your porch. It was like every, you know, like people were literally sharing beds with other writers. So it was really (laughs) close quarters. Yeah. And we, we raised money for it so that, so that it was free for the artists. And in fact, that first year, we also gave every artist a stipend to help offset the cost of coming. So the artists had to pay, they had to get there 
they had to get to Cancun. People couldn't get there. And we paid for their plane ticket. Yeah, so it was a free retreat. And we paid for all the food, all the ground transportation, the accommodations. And um, every day the artists would have, um, we had required quiet time, quiet hours for people to work, a couple of group readings, and then a group dinner every night that I would cook sometimes with a sous chef, if it was a big group of artists, where all the artists would get to talk about like what was going on with their work and professional questions. And that inspired me. So I was going, so I went to that and it was so wonderful. I went twice. Thanks for creating that, you guys. Yeah. I went twice. And also it was like, I got a passport for the first time so I could go to the radar lab. I was like, oh, I guess I got to get a passport so oh I can go to Mexico. God. But I've been going for a long time to the Southwester Lodge, um, which is a travel, vintage travel trailer park by the ocean um, in Washington. On the Washington side, it's all airstreams and stuff. And I was like, there should be a retreat here that's like radar. But because it was in Washington and not Oregon, I couldn't fundraise for it because I couldn't fundraise with like Oregon grant places. So I passed off the idea to the women that do short run comics festival in Seattle and they created their own woman and non-binary um, identified person comics retreat called trailer blaze, which is a direct descendant of radar. That's so incredible. And like, I think 10 to 12 cartoonists go every year for about a week and they pay some small amount of money. Um, you know, they get like a bitch and group rate and then they get a little bit of funding and they do communal meals every night, but everyone has their own kind of trailer or cabin room oh so they God. can deal with their own food during the day. And then we have like one big dinner together and people can talk about what they're working on. And then we have a little like kind of gallery walk to everyone's different trailer oh. one of the last days so they can show everyone what they've been working on and talk about it. God, that's so awesome. So that cool. sounds incredible. It's a direct descendant. But something I think was really valuable at Radar was seeing retreats where people don't have to pay. Or don't have to pay very much if they had to pay anything because there's so many retreats that are predatory. It's a scam. You're paying really? people's mortgage. Yeah. Can you tell us? Can you talk about that? Because I know a lot of artists that are like, look at this great residency. It only costs eight hundred dollars. Uh, there is very few residencies that cost money that I would. I was going to say that I would let my clients go to. They're adults that I would <laughs> encourage them to apply to. There's very few. Most most artist retreats are free. In fact, many of them will even help cover some of the costs of getting there. At the very least, you will have accommodations and food. There are a few that have a fee, but they often will have a structure that you can apply to have the entire fee or most of the fee waived. A residency shouldn't cost you money. A lot of residency, if you Google artist residency and, and a place, you will find infinite things because it's just a business structure people are creating to pay for their vacation home, wow. which is fine, whatever. But also know that like you could just spend that much money or more or less and make your own thing right, anywhere you right, want. Like right. go, if you'd actually rather be on the ocean, go rent an Airbnb somewhere on the ocean. Now, what about the prestige of some of them? Like some of them that like from being at this, it shows that your caliber of work is this. Those are all free. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those are all free. The ones that come with sort of like leveraging other opportunities like a Nintendo game, well, once you go to this retreat, then all these things open to you. Those do not cost money. They might have an application fee. Most residencies have an application fee, but even sometimes that can be waived. Mm, you can always ask for fees to be waived, my friends, and medical debt. To be waived? <laughs> you can just call them and say... You can negotiate medical debt. Everybody needs to know that. This is I didn't a know that. Life-saving podcast. It's crazy, seriously. <laughs> Beth thinking saving lives. A, a sudden swerve. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's so valuable. And also, Beth, you just brought it back to our main topic at hand, which is creating your own thing. Yeah. Create your own retreat. Mm -hmm. Grab some friends and rent an Airbnb. 
Yeah. Um, are there ways that from creating your own thing, creating Sister Spit, and then eventually you created a nonprofit just because you were doing so much programming in San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, what are some ways that that has helped helped your work? Um, how do you see helping the community having helped your own artistic practice or career? I mean, like, you know, just looking at Sister Spit, it's like I was able to build a name as a writer because of Sister Spit. I couldn't have done that just me, Michelle T, going out into the world, nobody knowing who I am, like doing little readings, like no one would have come. But coming into town with, you know, seven other performers and it's like an event and it's like this thing that's happening and people want to go to it. So it was like we all, you know, by banding together, we all became more recognized and we all got to build our readership outside of our immediate communities before most of us had ever been published before. And then that was really attractive to a publisher that you haven't even published a book yet, yet all these people in different cities are aware of your writing and enjoy your writing. Mm -hmm. So I always feel like whatever you can do to lift your community, like you get lifted with that as well. So, yeah. It's really true. My first self-help book came out in 2018. And I think people found out about it because of the goodwill of so many artists that I know and artists that I've worked with through my years working as an arts professional and having my consulting business. I knew a lot of artists who um, thought what I have to say is valuable and who liked and supported me. And so when my book came out, they bought it and they told other people about it and they gave it to other artists. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it also keeps your... It keeps your name around in between projects. If you're still involved in community, still helping other people, Mm -hmm. still lifting other people up, they're still talking about you. You're still active, even if you're not doing your exact thing at that exact moment in time. Yeah. It can become one of your things. Um, Do either of you have any last advice for artists or writers? There's no such thing as a flushable wipe. We all just need to know that. Really? It's a lie. <laughs> there are no wipes that are flushable. They I all have some that say flushable. Dis- I know them. they all say flushable. They all have to be thrown into the trash. Do you have any other <laughs> advice? That's it. That's, <laughs> that's it. it. <laughs> I can't top that. That's so practical. <laughs> she just saved your plumbing. She saved your plumbing. Earth. She just saved your life. Yeah. <laughs> Um, my advice is, uh, promote yourself. It's not comfortable at first, but you'll get used to it. It's just like any muscle. You just build it and it's giving people the opportunity to support you. And you may have cut them off before they even had the chance to not support you. Yeah. Truth. And if you just see something that you want and you feel like you can't get in, create your own version of it so that you're not waiting for somebody to allow you in, whether that's a publishing house or a retreat center or, uh, a, you know, a performance event. Just do your own. Do your own thing. And uh, also host a breakfast show. And invite me. And invite Michelle. Yeah. Michelle will read it for free. <laughs> <laughs> for pancakes. For pancakes. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.